Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Matthew, the 19th chapter, where my Bible is open to. Matthew chapter 19. I will encourage you to be finding a Bible and be turning to that passage of Scripture. Matthew, the 19th chapter. Be ready to read that passage and talk about that passage along with all of the other Scriptures that we'll read and study from this morning. That is what this part of our worship is devoted entirely to, and that is to the consideration of God's Word and how it intersects with our daily lives. It's great to see everybody this morning. So glad that you're here. We do have just a number of guests with us. And I tried to get around the building and shake hands and say hello to everybody. But I'm standing up here now and I still see a bunch of folks that I didn't get to say hello to and get to meet. And so hopefully I have the opportunity to do that uh, at the conclusion of of service this morning. But so glad that you're here today. We've come today to worship God in spirit and in truth and give Him the honor and the glory that He so richly deserves. Let's continue that now through the reverencing of His Word. I'm reading here in Matthew chapter 19 at the words of Jesus. Read with me beginning in verse 3. Matthew 19 verse 3. The Bible says that the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered verse 4. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If you were to go to the courthouse in any county or parish in the good state of Louisiana... There you will find a clerk sitting behind a desk with a sign that reads, Marriage Licenses, Apply Here. And if you watch for very long, pretty soon you're going to see one of those excited young couples. They're going to come up to the counter and they're nervous and they're giggling a little bit because they've come to get that marriage license. And as they're filling out their paperwork and as they're paying their money and they're getting all that legal stuff in order, eventually the clerk is going to ask them, do you want a covenant marriage? A covenant marriage. And what the clerk means by that is, do you want that extra special marriage that Louisiana actually passed law providing for? Basically, a covenant marriage is its kind of a step up from just regular marriage. Because covenant marriages are harder to get into and they are harder to get out of. Before you can be married in a covenant marriage, you first of all have to consent to premarital counseling. And, this is important, if you have a covenant marriage... You cannot ever have one of those quickie, no-fault divorces that are just quick and painless and easy. No, if the marriage runs into trouble, before the state of Louisiana will grant you a divorce, you have to submit yourselves to more counseling. You have to try to get that marriage worked out. All of that revolves around what you sign Before you get married, you sign a declaration of intent. It looks something like this. I actually printed this straight off of the Louisiana State website. You sign a declaration of intent that says this. We do solemnly declare that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman who agree to live together as husband and wife for so long as they both may live. We understand the nature, the purpose, and the responsibilities of marriage. We have read the Covenant Marriage Act, and we understand that a covenant marriage is for life. Now, if you're like me when you first heard about that, you might be thinking, wow, that is pretty great. That's just pretty cool. I must tell you, the people down in Louisiana, they don't think it's all that great, and they don't think it's all that cool. Out of the first 15,000 marriages after that law was passed, only 147 couples said, we want a covenant marriage. Similar laws were later passed in the state of Arizona and in Arkansas. In the state of Arkansas, out of the first 40,000 marriages, only 600 said, we want the covenant marriage. And in Arizona, the numbers are similar. Only about 1% of people every year will apply for the covenant marriage. Now, that seems to me like that's an awful lot of people who are just kind of conceding right up front that their marriage may not go the distance. And so they want to keep their options to bail out. They want to keep those options wide open. 
Yet it seems to me that what we just read in Matthew 19 and in verse 6, that verse says that God wants every marriage to be a covenant marriage. That marriage is more than just a covenant between a man and a woman. It is a covenant between a man and a woman and God Almighty who created marriage. And despite what we see in our world today all around us, where marriage on television is treated like some kind of a game. You see The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. I'm so shocked that that show still exists today. Or sitcoms and shows like Mistresses and Desperate Housewives, where marriage is treated very flippantly. and You can just kind of quit whenever you're tired of doing that. No! According to the Bible, marriage is not a game where you can quit when you get tired of playing. That idea of till death do us part, That's not just some cliché. That's not some fickle hope. That's not just some old-fashioned saying that, well, nobody really believes that anymore. No! God wants men and women to treat marriage seriously and to remain married until death do we part. That is the covenant we are making in marriage. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, Josh, that is an awfully tall order in the society in which we live today, You're exactly right. But I want to show you this morning from the Word of God that you can, in fact, have that kind of marriage. I want to show you what a covenant marriage looks like right out of the Scriptures, the kind of marriage that pleases God and the kind that will truly last. And if you think this morning that I'm going to talk to you about all kinds of things like, men, you need to date your wife or communication is the key, or here's how you resolve conflicts in marriage, and those kinds of things, then think again. I've preached those kinds of lessons before. I think those kinds of lessons are helpful. Those are certainly a place for that kind of preaching. But I don't think that any of those ideas really drill down to the core fundamental truths that we need to hear if we're going to have marriages that will truly go the distance. My wife and I, we've been married for a little over seven years now. And I can tell you, even though we are in the middle of year seven, we still need these kinds of reminders and this kind of lesson. But you know what? It's not just for us. It's not just for other younger couples. It's for all folks who are married. It's for all folks who have intentions of one day being married. It's for all people who desire to see people live out God's plan in their lives. In fact, this morning before I'm done, I've got something extra special that I want to say to young people. And then I've even got an even added bonus as well for folks who are older and have been married for a very, very long time. I think there's something in this lesson for just about everybody today. Let's talk about the keys for a successful covenant marriage. And the very first thing on that list where that all needs to begin, in order to make that happen, it needs to start by cutting off... The autopilot. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. If a couple comes in on a Sunday morning, and they're all excited, and they're walking around, and that young lady, she's showing off a big bright new diamond ring, what do they say? They say, oh, we're engaged. We're getting ready to get married. They're excited about that, and everybody's excited about that. We're getting ready to get married. What do they mean by that? What do they mean when they say, we're getting ready to get married? I'll tell you what that means. That means they're engaged in this time of intense prayer to the Lord for their marriage. That means they're they're reading their Bible. That means they're learning all the passages in the Bible about marriage. It means they're seeking out other couples who have good and godly and long-lasting marriages and they're learning from their advice. Is that usually what people mean when they say, we're getting ready to get married? No, a couple comes in and they say, we're getting ready to get married. What that means is, is that means we're picking out China patterns. That means we're looking for a place to book the ceremony. We're looking to get the decorations and the cake and the tuxes and the dresses, getting all of those things ordered. We're making sure the preacher's schedule is clear so that he can be ready for that day. We're doing all the really important stuff to have that ceremony. Everything from picking out who's going to serve the punch that afternoon to who's going to strangle anybody whose cell phone goes off during the service, all the really important things to have that ceremony. Yet when you stop and think about it, none of those things really have anything to do with being married, do they? Those are all just preparations to get married. 
All too often, I am afraid that couples do not prepare to be married. They just prepare and get ready to have a big wedding. Well, what we need to, we need to talk about today is we need to talk about what it means to be married, not how to just have a big lavish ceremony. Yet over and over again, especially if the ceremony is big and extravagant and lavish, somehow couples just seem to expect that well, wedded bliss just comes along with the package. We had the big wedding. Surely that's going to bring with it the wedded bliss as well. It's just guaranteed. It'll just show up on its own. We're on autopilot. The preacher asked if we said I do. We did. Everything's going to be great now. And then a few weeks or a few months down the road, when things aren't all that great, what happens? They whine. They complain. Oh my, nobody delivered that great marriage all wrapped in a bow to our front doorstep. Would you find with me Colossians, the third chapter, please? In Colossians chapter 3, if you're here on Wednesday night in the auditorium class, we've been studying in Colossians, and we came to Colossians chapter 3. And what we saw is that this autopilot stuff, it just doesn't work. Doesn't work with what the Bible teaches about marriage. In Colossians chapter 3, look in verse 18. There Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, whatever you make of those two verses, and I know lots of people have lots of ideas about what those verses are talking about, but I'll tell you this, you cannot deny that submit and love are verbs. There's your grammar lesson for the day. They are verbs, which means we need to do something. It requires us to take action, to take actions in our marriage. In fact, what these verses tell us is that that old adage is true. It takes work. To make a marriage work. And that we cannot just expect that it's going to automatically show up. No, we'll need to do some things necessary to make for a great marriage. Would you find in the Old Testament, please, in the Song of Solomon? In Song of Solomon chapter 5, here's a book of the Bible, that married folks and folks who desire to be married one day would really do well to read and to study and to think more about. In the Song of Solomon in chapter 5, there's a lot of poetry and There's some confusing language in this particular book. There's sometimes confusion about who's doing the talking, but I think we can figure it out. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, read the beginning of verse 2. This is the voice of the wife. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, he says. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Verse 3, she says, oh... I'd put off my garment. How how could I put it back on? I'd bathe my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved then put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought for him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Now again, there's a lot of poetic language there, but... You see what happened there, don't you? The husband came to his wife and he said, Honey, open the bedroom door. She said, Oh, I'm too tired. I've already had my bath. I've already got my PJs on. I'm already in bed. I can't get up to open the door. I'm too tired for marital intimacy. Then in a moment, verse 4, she realizes that she'd made a mistake. And so she gets up and she goes to open the door, but alas, he's gone. You see what happened there? Her doing nothing, her not putting anything into that marriage, it caused a rift in that relationship. Her unwillingness to do some work, to do some things, thinking that she really didn't have to take a really active part in the marriage, it resulted in some trouble in that home. Now if you continue and you finish out reading the book of the Song of Solomon, what you'll find is that the wife, she does repent. And she begins to invest herself in her husband. And their marriage goes forward like it should. But I wonder, how many married folks today never learn that lesson? The beginning of everything that I need to talk about pertaining to marriage is about you. It's about me. It's about you taking responsibility for your marriage. Don't tell me about what you wished would have happened in your marriage. What are you doing in your marriage? Don't talk about and look at other people and say, oh, they have such great marriages. What are you doing to make your marriage great? 
And quit thinking about this idea of, you know, someday it's all going to get worked out and it's all going to be okay. That somehow it's just going to kind of arrive on its own magically. There's going to be this big fairy tale, happily ever after kind of ending. Stop thinking in those terms. You, husband, you, wife, get busy. You do what it takes to have a great marriage like God describes in the pages of His Word. Cut off this autopilot and get in the marriage relationship yourself. And so somebody says, all right, that's pretty compelling stuff. I need to do some things, all right? What do I need to do? What what should I be doing to make for a covenant marriage? I'm glad that you asked. I want to tell you secondly this morning, we need to be cultivating oneness. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning of time. Find in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, let's read about that first home. And let's see what God intends for a marriage to be, what God has always intended for a marriage to be. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 22. In Genesis 2 verse 22, the Bible says that the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman. and He brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is God speaking now, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. This is an amazing passage. Because it describes for us what marriage is at its very essence. In fact, this is the passage that Jesus is quoting from in Matthew 19 where we began. And what Jesus says, what God says, is that this special marriage relationship, it begins with leaving, it is predicated upon cleaving. That everything in that relationship is all about how it is more special, more unique than any other human, fleshly, earthly relationship. And then what is really special about that is that when that occurs, a man and a woman, they can cleave together. And they can know an intimacy beyond anything else that they might be able to experience here upon planet Earth. And I do want you to know this morning that that is a whole lot more. I mentioned this Wednesday night, but I'll say it again. I do believe that this one flesh business, I believe it is about more than just physical intimacy. I believe it refers to the joining together of two people to become one. One in dreams, one in hopes, one in goals, one in aspirations, one as a single unit. Marriage is all about two separate people giving themselves up and coming together to become something that they never could have been individually, something bigger than they ever could have been individually. I am not important, but we, we matter. It's not you and me now. No, now it's it's us. There's the cleaving there. Increasingly, though, I believe that our society is... Just really getting out of touch with this idea. Some of you have maybe seen in wedding ceremonies, actually in our wedding ceremony, we uh, did this uh, several years ago, where the bride and the groom, they'll come together and they'll light the unity candle, or there'll be like a candle over here on one side of the stage, and then a candle over here, and those candles represent kind of the, the individual flames, the individual lives of the man and the woman. And so they take those candles, and they come to the center stage, and there's a single candle, and they, they light that single candle, the unity candle, and then afterwards they, they blow out their individual candles. And that's, again, that's what me and Tiffany did in our wedding. But you know what? I've been to a wedding where they, they did the lighting of the unity candle, but then afterwards they didn't do the... And I remember asking the man and the woman about that, and the woman spoke up and she said, well, the reason we didn't do that, that was intentional, it wasn't that we just forgot, the reason we didn't do that was because I don't want to give up my, my personhood in this marriage. I don't want to extinguish my individual flame because I don't want to give up my own space. I don't want to give up my, my meanness. I want to continue on in this relationship as, as I am and as I've always been. Now, nothing wrong if somebody chooses not to do the at the end of their unity candle in their wedding ceremony. There's something there, something in that explanation that bothers me a little bit. I think as well about sometimes, sometimes wives in a marriage, they will choose not to take their husband's last name. They'll choose to keep their maiden name. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but there's, there's something there. Or maybe they, 
people get married and they, they keep my money over here and that's your money over there. We're going to have separate bank accounts. Again, nothing sinful or wrong in any of that. But there's something in all of that that troubles me just a bit. Because in all of that, what I hear is I hear so much about I and me and what I want. And I'm hearing so little more and more today about us and about what we're going to do together in this one flesh relationship. Sometimes you'll even hear folks just say it even more candidly and more bluntly. They'll just say, marriage ought to make me happy. There it is, isn't it? Marriage is all about me. I saw a quotation uh, sometime back from the noted rap and movie star Queen Latifah. And she was explaining why she wore a wedding ring, even though at the time she was not yet married. People were curious, you're not married, why do you wear a wedding ring? She said, this is why. She said, I, I'm just married to myself. I just felt that it was time to take care of me and pamper myself. But when I meet the right man who can treat me as well as I treat me, then I'll take this ring off and I'll replace it with his. Now I read that and I remember thinking to myself, is she looking for a husband or is she looking for a butler? Because I really can't tell the difference there. What exactly is going on? You know, over and over again, we see that idea today of people who seem to think that marriage is a way to have a live-in maid or a live-in cook on the cheap. That marriage is a way to find somebody who's going to support me financially in the way that I want to be accustomed to. That marriage is about finding someone who will make it their sole preoccupation in life just to see that I am happy and tend to me all of the time. Let me ask you, where's Genesis chapter 2 in that kind of thinking? What happened to becoming one flesh? The marriage that God is talking about here in Genesis, it's not about me. It's not about how I can manipulate somebody to serve and just do for me all the time. Marriage isn't even about me at all. Marriage is about us. Marriage is about what we can become together. It's about being united to become something that I never could have been or you never could have been on your own. Marriage isn't about making me happy. It's about becoming one flesh so that both partners in that relationship can know the joy and the fulfillment that comes from a one flesh relationship. Can I maybe just be practical about all of that? Talking about this one flesh stuff. Let me just say very clearly what we're talking about. We talk about cultivating oneness. You understand that what concerns one concerns all. Isn't that how things work on a team? Look at 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, please. In 1 Corinthians 12, I want to say something here about this idea of a team. And I do want to use the example of the church team to demonstrate that. The principle here, I think, carries over. In 1 Corinthians 12, as Paul talks about the church and how it functions, 1 Corinthians 12, look in verse 26. Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's how any great endeavor operates, isn't it? That the concern of the one is the concern of the many. Because if one breaks down, well, the whole team breaks down, doesn't it? Isn't that true in sports? A single injury can cost a team the season and cost them the championship. Or what about militarily? What about an army maybe defending a base? You know, if the enemy breaks in on the south wall, the defenders on the north wall don't turn around and say, come on guys, what's the problem? You guys are laying down on the job. That's not how that works, is it? No. They jump in there. They help one another. Why? Because they're in this together. Can I ask you, are things supposed to be any different in a marriage? That whatever concerns my wife concerns me. We're a team. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, gentlemen, if you think that that's not the case. Because Peter says that if men want to pray, then they better treat their wives right. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 7, Peter says this after giving some instructions to wives. He then says in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
I need to understand my wife and dwell with her in an understanding way. I need to do that so that the team that our marriage is, it can be the very best that it possibly can be. That her problems are my problems. Her concerns are my concerns. Her fears are my fears. Not the frog fear, but all the other more important fears. I'm right there with her. But we're going to work together with those fears. We're going to work to overcome them and to conquer them. I can't belittle her. I can't act like her issues and her problems, they, now they're just trivial and they don't matter. Just kind of dismiss them. No, we're a team. We're going to have to do whatever it takes to overcome whatever obstacles the world and the devil may put in front of us. If one of us gets fired from our job, both of us are going to be in there with that. If one of us gets diagnosed with a terminal disease, we're both going to fight that together. We're going to do this together. We're a team. That's the oneness we're cultivating. And that means, if that's going to happen, that means then thirdly, we're going to have to value every member in the team. And the way that we do that is by valuing what the Bible says about roles. Here is probably the most misunderstood thing about marriage in all of the Word of God. Let's just get over to Ephesians chapter 5. You had to know, you had to know in Ephesians chapter 5 that we were going to be getting here sooner or later. We mentioned a few moments ago when we read from Colossians, we read that word submit, that wives are to submit. I can kind of feel it in the room whenever you read that verse. Sometimes ladies will kind of flinch a little bit. Whoa! What's that all about submitting? Well, let's just see what the Bible says about that and what the Bible says about the power of roles. In Ephesians chapter 5, kind of a lengthy reading, but we need to read it in Ephesians 5. Begin with me in verse 22. There Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, what is the common interpretation of those verses today? For so long, what people have believed Paul is saying here is that the husband, he's the king. He is the absolute lord and tyrant. He is just the absolute dictator in the house. He claps his hands and the woman just jumps and does what he says. She fetches him a soda pop from the refrigerator. She brings him the remote control. She puts slippers on his feet. And as a result of that kind of thinking... Many people have looked at Ephesians 5 and they have said, how archaic, how outdated that is. I'm not doing that. People long ago may have did that, but I'm not doing anything like that. Yet if you've been following along at all this morning, then you know already that that interpretation, that's got to be wrong. Because where's the team in somebody mistreating their partner? Where is the team in treating somebody like an indentured servant? How does that contribute to that oneness in a marriage? I think already we can conclude that that interpretation of Ephesians 5, that just doesn't fly, that doesn't jive with all of the rest of Scripture. doesn't work with what we read in Genesis chapter 2. And in fact, did you notice there in verse 31, that right there, there was Genesis chapter 2 yet again. Maybe this passage is saying something different than what is so commonly accepted today. What is Ephesians chapter 5 trying to tell us? Well, maybe I can share just a couple of quick ideas with us that will help us to better understand and better appreciate this text. Let me just start by saying something very, very profound. Those of you that are members here at Lakeside and are here regularly, you know that every now and then I like to to kind of wax scholarly and kind of show how profound and deep I can be. So let me get really deep right now. Here we go. Men and women are different. 
There it is. There you go. Aren't you glad you came to church on a Sunday morning to hear that kind of deep teaching from the Word of God? Men and women are different. Yet that needs to be said in our culture today, doesn't it? Because there are people in our world today who are trying to act like that's just not true. People want to act like men and women are just exactly the same. Trying to say that there's not any differences whatsoever. Want to kind of put everybody into the same position and into the same role. But but that isn't ever going to work, is it? Absolutely not. And why? Because God made men different from women. Men do differently. We think differently. We act differently. God made women unique as well. Very different from men in so many ways. And we need to understand about that. We need to appreciate that. And because men and women are different, God's going to ask them to contribute to the marriage relationship in different ways. God will ask each of them to bring to the marriage what they are uniquely built for, what they are made to do. That's how marriage is going to work best, isn't it? When each party brings to the table what they have, their talents, their abilities, what God has created within them to do so that marriage can be what God wants it to be. Well, what exactly does God want men to do in the marriage? Well, we just read there in verse 25 that that marriage, that team, it's going to need some leadership. And that is the role that men are called to do. Let me just say very, very clearly here to my brethren. Men, leadership is not a perk. Leadership is a responsibility. We are charged with the welfare of the home. We are charged with leading that home to be what God wants it to be. Do not ever confuse leadership with dictatorship. In fact, did you notice in Ephesians chapter 5, there's not a single word said there about forcing your wife to be in submission. Every now and then somebody will come to the preacher. In fact, it happened Wednesday night. The person who said this, they were joking. But it happened Wednesday night after services. Somebody will come to the preacher. Brother McKibben, I need you to get my wife in submission. You know what I said? I said, partner, I got nothing. I don't have anything. There's not a word said in the Bible about how to do that. You want to know why? Because submission is a choice. She chooses to do that. She voluntarily chooses to submit to your leadership because she wants to follow your lead. Now, can we think for just a second about how leadership is supposed to work? Let me talk in the language that I hope all men can understand. Let's talk for a second about sports. We just come off this past week, one of the biggest sporting events in all of the world, the Super Bowl happened last Sunday. New England Patriots won their, I don't know, bazillionth, it seems like bazillionth Super Bowl victory. Once again, Tom Brady going down as one of the great quarterbacks of all time. Just an amazing come-from-behind performance. Everybody's talking about that. What? How is that amazing come from behind, you know, performance? How is that possible? How in the world did all of that happen? I'll tell you how that happened. Tom Brady, he's the big star. He's the big star quarterback from the team. They got all the guys and he huddled them all up. He gets James White, that's his running back. And he gets Julian Edelman, gets his, his wide receiver, gets these guys all in the huddle and all the rest of the guys. And they're all talking about, here's the game plan, here's what's going to happen. And then Julian Edelman, he speaks up and he says, hey Tom, that guy who's running with me downfield, he's slow. He can't keep up with me. You ought to pass me the ball. And then Tom looks at Julian and he says, Shut up! Be quiet! I'm the quarterback here! I'm running this show out on the field! You just pipe down! I'll be the one handling the ball here! You just be quiet! Is that how that worked? I wasn't in that huddle, but I'm pretty sure that's not how that worked. Because Tom, Julian... James and all the rest of those guys on that team, they understood that they were a team. And they all had the same goal. The goal of running that piece of leather down into the end zone as many times as they possibly can. And so whatever feedback that Tom could receive, whatever information he could get to help them to reach that goal, if it was from a coach or from an assistant or from another player, or even some guy way up in the stands, he welcomed all of that. We want to welcome all that. Why? So that they can win and be successful. Now, can I pull that illustration out and now apply that to our marriages, men? Men, why is it that sometimes when the wife says, hey, I think here would be some good things for our home. Hey, here's some ideas that I had that would, that would help our children. Hey, here's some things that I've found and I've discovered that I think would be good and would help our finances. What's the thinking then? 
When a husband, after hearing all of that, he says, you shut up. You just be quiet. I'm in charge here. Remember, I'm the leader. I'm running this show. I'm the quarterback. You just pipe down and you follow suit. What kind of leadership is that? It's not leadership at all. Can I be honest with you? When a team doesn't play as a team because there's not good leadership, what do we many times do with the coach? We fire him. Get him out of there. Get somebody else in there who can lead. Have you ever thought, men, that if your home breaks down, it's going to be you that the Lord holds responsible for the failure of that team? You're the coach. And I sure would hate to be fired by the Lord if you get my meaning by that. This is a responsibility, gentlemen, that we must take very, very seriously. But what about the other half of the equation? What about the responsibility of women? Well, the responsibility and the role of women is there's going to be some following. There's going to be some leadership. There's going to need to also be some followership. And that is exactly what women are called to do. If you look there in verse 22, the word that's used there, to yield or to submit, the word there is a military term, which literally means to rank under. Or to give way to. And the essence of that is that she trusts the leadership of her husband. So that she will voluntarily, willingly follow after him. Nothing in the text says that she's to be treated like a doormat. Nothing in the text says that she's not equal to, or that she's somehow less of a human being than the husband, or that she ought to be, you know, kind of mistreated like a slave. No! She has a key part to play. She has to play the part that God made for her to play that is suited by her disposition, by her temperament, by her spirit. A very special and unique way in which God created the woman. And so instead of her bucking against everything that the man is trying to lead that family to be, instead of railing and criticizing at every possible turn, what is she going to do? What she's going to do is she's going to graciously encourage the leadership of her husband. She's going to do that for the good of the team. Now, what does our society at large, what do they say about that? You know what our society says about that. Our society says, oh, what a bunch of junk. What woman would ever, especially in 2017, what woman would ever make herself subservient to a man? I can't believe, this is so chauvinistic. Paul, Paul, what a pig that guy is. And you know the reason that society says that kind of thing? It's because they don't get it. They don't understand the power of roles. They don't understand what God has set up. They're just missing all of that. But but you, you see how it works, don't you? In marriage, as it really ought to be, what you have is you have a man who is trying to lead that family. But he's trying to lead that family in a certain way. Did you notice that? Look at Ephesians 5 again. Look at verse 25. He's going to lead that family in love, but it's a certain kind of love. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Gentlemen, when the Lord came to this earth, did He have everybody carrying Him around on their shoulders on like a big gold-plated throne? And they were fanning Him and feeding Him grapes and giving Him just the royal treatment? No! Jesus didn't get all the things that He wanted. He didn't even get all the things that He deserved. Dad, Jesus came here and He did what? He sacrificed. He gave Himself up for the good of others. Jesus had all the perks and privileges up in heaven, but He gave that up to come down here and sacrifice for us. What's a husband going to do? Well, a husband is going to lead in that exact same way. That is sacrificial leadership. Where He's putting her first. He's putting the good of the family first. What is best for us here? What can we do that will really cause our family to grow closer to the Lord, closer to one another, to serve Jesus even better? That man, that man's going to have to sacrifice. And that may mean, yeah, he'll have to give up maybe some of his hobbies, have to give up some of his habits. That man may have to give up some of his buddies and his friends that he's used to running around with. He may even have to give up a job for the good of that family. He's going to love his wife. Christ loved the church. In fact, what Ephesians 5.25 says is that husbands, they shouldn't expect that they're going to get their way all the time. Instead, husbands should be surprised if they ever get their way. Why? Because they're always giving themselves up. 
Now what's going to happen with a woman who's being led like that? Well, what she's going to do is she's going to gladly follow His lead. She enters into that marriage and young ladies... I've tried to place myself in the role of a young lady kind of approaching marriage. and I understand how intimidating that might be. Young lady, she's afraid. She's heard all the things that people in our society say that if you submit, he'll just walk all over you. He'll treat you like a doormat. She's heard all of that. She's she's really kind of terrified. But she's resolved in her heart, I'm going to try the Lord's way. I'm going to try to do that Ephesians 5 thing. So she tries to yield to Him. And as she does that, she begins to find trust in that man. And so she begins to follow him. And as she begins to follow him, what does she see? She begins to see, hey, he's not taking advantage of me. He's not abusing me. He's not mistreating me. He loves me. He loves me like Jesus loved His church. He's giving Himself up for me. He is honoring me. He's treating me in an understanding way. And so she follows Him gladly. And that then does what for the man? Well, that just encourages his leadership. He sees, look, she's not fighting against me. She's not pushing back and trying to have her way all the time. She really does trust me. And as he feels that weight, that heavy burden, that mantle of leadership upon his shoulders, he realizes, I don't want to let her down. I can never let her down. Look at how much she trusts me. Now he leads all the more strongly, thinking more and more about her and her needs and the family's needs above his own. What's best for them? Which in turn then does what for the woman? She just submits all the more. She trusts all the more. It's easier and easier for her to submit and it becomes easier and easier for Him to lead. And as those roles work together, they just become tighter and tighter and tighter over time. What woman would ever leave a man who leads like that? What man would ever even want or entertain the thought of another woman Who follows like that? I know that it will work because Paul says that's how the church works. You think about it, we submit to Christ willingly, don't we? And that relationship seems to be working out pretty good. Who of us here before we were baptized thought to ourselves, boy, I don't know if I want to submit to Jesus. He might have me scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush. I don't want to do that. None of us thought that. We trust Jesus completely. We have absolute trust in the Lord. We know that He gave Himself up for us. We know that He is doing things on our behalf. Jesus wants what is absolutely best for us. It's easy for us to submit to Jesus. We never have any doubts about His leadership. Can I say to all the ladies here, speaking on behalf of all men, we're not Jesus. As best we may try, we're not ever going to be Jesus. That means sometimes we're not going to lead in the way that Jesus led. We're going to mess things up from time to time. So men, what are we going to do about that? We're going to have to repent. We're going to have to look our wives in the eye and we're going to have to say, I'm so sorry. I was being selfish and self-motivated, self-willed, self-centered. I was doing just what I wanted to do and I wasn't thinking about you and thinking about the family. I'm asking for your forgiveness because I want you to trust me. Ladies, sometimes, if you're being honest as well, You're not always going to submit and follow like you should. Sometimes that trust diminishes and isn't isn't kind of up to par. Well, what are you going to do about that? You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to go to your husband and say, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I want to change. I want to do better. I want to trust you. I want to follow you. I want to do what the Bible teaches. We're going to have to just get right back into those roles that God has given us. And have to have that man doing some leading, that woman doing some following, each one of those roles and responsibilities reinforcing the other as that marriage grows stronger, deeper, and better every single day. You know, all around us, all kinds of different marriage models have been tested and they've been tried, and all of them one by one, they have failed. They all have resulted in power struggles and bickering and fighting over who does this and who does that. And our modern society as a result has ruined countless marriages. All because men and women have not seen the beauty and the simplicity of what God has set up here. God's Word, it's right. 
And it works. When husbands and wives fulfill their God-given roles, and we need to be the ones who are going to show the world that it does work. Now, I said before I'd close, I would have a word that I want to say to young people, didn't I? Here it is, young people. How long should you date someone until you know you're ready to be married? I think I can answer that question precisely for you right from this point right here. Gentlemen, you should not ask a young lady to take your hand in marriage until you are absolutely certain that she will follow your leadership. You marry a girl who's not interested in following your lead, you will be a busy man, you will have a very, very unhappy marriage. Ladies, how long should you date that guy and get to know him before you say yes to that wedding proposal, that marriage proposal? Well, I'll tell you, you date and you get to know that man well enough until you trust him enough to submit and follow after him. Because this submission stuff, it's not optional equipment. It is a requirement of the Lord. It is the burden the Lord has placed upon you. And if you don't trust that man enough to follow his leadership, you just better not marry him. Or if you can't find that kind of trust in any man, you better just not get married at all because you'll just be sinning all the time in that relationship. I said as well before I close, I wanted to say something to those of you who've been married for a long time, and I'll do that right now. There are a lot of people in our world today who look at this, they look at what the Bible says, and they just don't believe that that this could possibly work. They don't believe that you can really have a successful marriage doing things in that way. But those of you that have been married a long time, we've got folks in here who have been married... Ed and Thelma, they just recently celebrated 70 years of marriage. Those of you that have been married for a long time, you've been there. And you've done that. You know that this works. You have experienced that little bit of paradise on earth that God makes possible in a good and strong marriage. Can I ask a favor of you, please? Those of you that have been married for a while. Please, please, please don't denigrate marriage. Please don't constantly be making those little jokes and those little digs and those little jabs that we are so want to do about marriage. Somebody comes in and they announce that they're fixing to get married, that they're engaged, and what are we, we're quick to say what? We're going to say, oh, ball and chain, buddy. Oh, man, you're cashing it in right now. You're giving up all your freedom. Oh, it's all over now. When Emily Bellwood, uh, Mantle now, when her and Jacob, one of the last times they were here before they got married, I found myself joining in right in with all those little jokes and jabs and cuts and digs. Well, why do we do that? What are we saying when we say that kind of stuff? I, it's one of two things. Either A, we're saying that God's plan is lousy and it just makes you miserable, or B, we're telling on ourselves. Have you been married for a long time? If so... Please speak positively about marriage. Go to that young couple who's just gotten engaged and you tell them how good marriage can be on the first day and how much better it'll be when they've been married as long as you have. You go and you tell that young bride-to-be how good and wonderful it is to follow a man who is really leading in the way that Christ leads. You go and tell that young groom-to-be how good it is to give up of himself, to sacrifice of himself for the good of that family. You speak positively about marriage. All around us, our world is just down on marriage. Sitcoms paint marriage as being just the most unpleasant scene you can ever imagine. It's just the scene of arguing and fussing and fighting. More and more people today, they just don't want to get married. It seems like the only people in our world today who want to get married are the homosexuals. And then, of course, we hear all that negative stuff about marriage and we come to church and what do we hear? I've been married 61 years. This is the most miserable thing of my life. Well, what is wrong with Christians? Why do we do that? We can do better than that. We must do better than that. We hear that kind of stuff. Why would anybody ever want to get married? We ought to be the people who know absolutely best about how good and great and wonderful marriage can be and how great God is to bless our marriages. Let's tell our kids. Let's tell our young people. That marriage can be great. Am I up here trying to be all Pollyanna-ish and trying to say that marriage is just blissful and there's never any problems ever? I'm not saying that. 
Every marriage has troubles and problems from time to time. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Do you know what I am saying? I'm saying that when a marriage has some of that leadership, it has some of that followership, when we try to do things in the Lord's way, when we do that, we can have that wonderful relationship that God designed so long ago in the Garden of Eden where two become one. When we see how all of this works together, I think what we see quite clearly is that what the Bible calls for us to have is to not just have kind of good marriages, okay, average, mediocre marriages. No, what the Bible calls for Christians to have is the best marriages. Deeply meeting the greatest needs of the human spirit for companionship and for love and for affection as we help one another in our journey toward heaven. And you know... Whether human ideas and human laws, whether they ever catch up to what the Bible has been saying for a long time, doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. Because we know. We know and we trust and we believe that the only way to have a covenant marriage is to do it God's way. To trust God that He knows best. Now we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ our Lord. You've been very patient this morning. You listen very well. I appreciate that. As we extend the invitation of the Lord, it is fitting that we would end with these last couple of points here about leadership and about submission. Because a great part of the invitation of the Lord is that we would submit ourselves to His authority and to His leadership. You can do that today if you have not already. If you have not surrendered your will to King Jesus in obedience, humble and heartfelt obedience unto Him, you can do that today. And what is the will of King Jesus? The will of King Jesus is that people would confess Him before men, that they would repent and turn from sin, that they would be baptized so that their sins might be washed away, and that they would live faithfully for Him all the days of their life. Can we help somebody today to take those initial steps? Brother or sister, can we help you to serve the Lord more faithfully, to be devoted to Him and to Him only? This opportunity is yours right now. We're going to sing this song to your encouragement. If there's anybody here who needs to respond to the call of the gospel, this is your moment and your opportunity. Take advantage of it right now as we stand and as we sing.